0: Welcome back to the Afros and Knives podcast. I am your host, Tiffany Rozier, and this week's conversation is with chef, writer, and Black food historian, Therese Nelson. This is that unapologetically Black episode. We talk about the diaspora, we talk about the roots of American cooking, and the future of Black food ways. I love this episode so much and I appreciate Teresa coming on and having this conversation. It's long overdue. So let's get to it.
1: So thanks so much for having me. Um, my name is um, Teresa Nelson. Um, uh, Lots of things. I'm mainly a private chef. Um, My career started um, probably about 15 years ago um, after graduating from Johnson & Wales. I really knew back then that I wanted to be a caterer, but... sort of navigating how to figure that out and how to get the tools i needed to be um sort of credible in that space i worked mainly in hotels so spent the first sort of four or five years of my professional life postgrad um working in around country in hotels um and then landed back in new york i'm from north new jersey originally and um we started navigating working through the maze of New York city and found some partners who are developing their own cookbook series and everything is sort of, um, got it from there um started a very small boutique catering company just at the moment when i think larger brands were realizing that women of color really did have disposable income and really were sort of a um, an untapped market um so did lots of catering with um brands like essence and um Black like enterprise and american express and all that sort of turned into um all of our lives changed into cookbooks past that and um now sort of um changed our practice into mainly private chef work but about a decade ago um through navigating the professional side of my career i really sort of saw the void that there was in chefs of color, specifically Black chefs, um, being able to sort of use our culture and our work. There was this moment where I was looking around um, in all of these food spaces, television, um, multiple forms of media, but just in my daily life, I wasn't seeing um, my peers. I wasn't interacting with other chefs of color in a way that was impactful, and lots of the reasons why I wanted to come to this work originally um I just wasn't connecting to, I hadn't picked up Taste of Country Cooking since high school. Um, I wasn't really connected to all those things intuitively I knew um, that told me I was a uniquely American chef. Our history in this country tells us that. And so I started this project called Black Culinary History, just sort of a personal personal um, analysis. I wanted to, for my own education and my own sort of centeredness, be um, connected to why we do this work and why we um why we should all especially black chefs know for sure that we are uniquely American. So it became this um sort of quest for history, it became um, an obsession about reading everything I could and sort of having this one hub that was at the same time about um, our culinary past, knowing the truth for sure. Um networking that I found and was inspired by working chefs and knew who was working and doing dope work around the country, but also um, recognizing the idea of legacy and sort of the time pass and um, being an example, sort of a hub for young people to have this like, sort of um, piece of information they had to use in their own work because i knew that if i was at sort of the, the first turning point in my own work that surely um the, the young one coming behind me would have um a similar struggle so it's been about 10 years of that work and it's grown exponentially and just the progress and the sort of encouragement of um the, the progression of all that time, slow and steady growth, has shown me like the power of just staying in your course and doing work that is quiet, intentional, and rooted. Um, it's sort of paid off some dividends in my own work, but also in our just in our community. It's so dope to see all of the cool things that happen just from building community in small, intentional ways.
0: I love it. I mean, finding your work was so was just like a confirmation that, you know, the, the work that we do is creating um, is creating space for us in the present, but also allowing the work that has been done before we got here to to be um, to be represented as well, creating space for for the past as well. Um, And Mm -hmm. and to your point about, you know, just media at large and how we are represented in media. And it's, you know, for me, I think the first thing I always see is that it's limiting. It's not very, it's not a, we're not Mm. considered global. And so there's a very small little keyhole that we're allowed to fit in. And then outside of that, you know, we're, we're absent from a lot of other spaces, I think, are just vital. I know there was, um, oh, I think it was Corsia Wilson that was talking about, um, that wrote an article about um, having a Black culinary history in culinary school and making sure that that's part of the curriculum as well. And because, you know, most traditional culinary schools, they teach from... You know the, the a French uh, perspective. You know that's kind of the the baseline for all for all classic cooking, as people would consider it. And so for me, I'm interested in knowing, like, with your like your culinary education and your experience, what was your pathway to integrate like all the information you were were finding about our past history? And you know, once you found like once you started to find that information. You were saying, you know, how did you let it inform your cooking and your work? Sure.
1: Um, So I'll say... a couple things. One, this is all a process, right? Like, I recognize, like, I think, I want to say this coming December will be um, 11 years. It was the Christmas of 08. I was having this sort of Tiffany, this moment where, like, we were just, um, my partners and I were in in a transition with our business. I had um, been working in a hotel full-time plus building this very tiny catering company. And it was this moment of, like, okay, I'm going to, you know, step out on faith and do this, um, you know, work with our, um, I company full time, and that was right when the economy downturned. So I was in this like sort of personal crisis, and so the work came out of like not not even crisis, but just a sense of like you know making moves professionally, but also having like serious personal rooted reasons why you were doing this work. And so I say that over ten years, it's been a process of just knowing for sure the truth, right? It was probably five years ago now. I was in Austin. Um, Tony Tipton Martin kind of put the bass signal out for the 150th um, anniversary of June, like, um, Emancipation. So Juneteenth 150th anniversary. And she said, let's just get all the brown food folks around the country. So it was, it was all these people who you would know. It was the, it was the, the dopest writers and chefs. And, you know, from Jessica Harris to most of the chefs and folks you know. And we're in Austin in this one place, in this chapel, with this whole day of symposiums, right? And this is this really interesting collective, right? And in that moment, with the smartest, mm-hmm. best minds you could think of in the country, there was still this sense of how do we define our foodways and what does that even mean? I'm talking about Jessica Harris, who's given us fourteen cookbooks at that point, in the Hog was to me the sort of foundational work that sort of contextualized blackness in American food base. And even in that room with all these minds, there was still this moment of trying to figure out how we use the collective history we know from the limited scholarship, as well as what we know intuitively and what we know um, professionally, how do we use that to define our foodways and the zeitgeist? And so, courses is brilliant, and her piece was absolutely right that that I think culinary schools have to be more responsible to broader cultural points of reference. But at this point, I'm unsure that it's it's going to look like hardcore curriculum. To me, it's it should look like. Um, Sort of supplements, right? Like I went to Johnson Wells, CIA, most of the colleagues schools around the country. why theres why they not more there this, this should be a sense of innovation, right? There are chefs willing to and and that need to come along and provide sort of a, an extra layer of cultural context. Why is Kwame watching not, you know, um, doing week-long intensives around his points of reference from West Africa to Caribbean, where he's doing the kiss and can Why aren't, you know, why Michael Tweedy would come forward? I think that it would look more like that because at this point, um, we need more scholarship, we need more books published, we need more um, context to sort of allow for the breath and the time and the the, um, resources to be put into um, the fullness and the um, documentation of our food waste in the same way other cultures have. Um, I think I I would think, I think about um, CIA's at at, at its beginning was Essentially, a GI Bill. Um, uh, all these ex- these um soldiers coming back from war, using the GI Bill to get training in the industry that was emerging. So you're talking about Jefferson Evans in the 19 late 40s, early 50s, when the, the industry was just sort of coming to pass. So like your point. French cuisine was it. French cuisine was the, the height of sophistication, and even in those moments, it was still black and brown chefs who were using the NGI building in, a, in an expensive way to get that foundational information. But then, it took another. 15, 20 years for them to start integrating Italian cuisine and Asian cuisine. And so my, my point is just that our foodways—we ways, have, we have just come to a place where we're getting past the necessity of identity conversations, right? We, we're just, we're fighting and writing about at least a lot of freelance writing, a lot of public talking. even now, decade in, we're just getting past the moment where it's less about fighting for um, a ad- place of identity and more about what these foodways look like, right? The Times article just came out a couple weeks ago, the 16 chefs that are influencing Black food ways and influencing the country who happen to be Black. That list was not exhaustive, but it was absolutely um, I, it's, it's iconic because it was emblematic of the, the, the spaces and sort of the breadth of things that chefs of color, Black chefs occupy. But to me, that turning point was that the times in that moment was saying, look, Here's a collection of 16 chefs from all across the country who represent our different identities, are cooking vastly different cuisines. Here they are. This is a small percentage or small representation of the hundreds of chefs around the country who are doing this work okay let's take a breath now we can start talking about the food now we can start talking about how we're defining these collective de foodways food ways and what does that look like so now it's to me about getting more book deals getting more cookbooks that, that represent these food ways it's about you know colonial schools sort of seeing the power and the, the longevity and sort of the the pride of place that these foodways have in the Corn And so you have to prepare your students to cook these foodways. Um, it's going to look like a lot of things. It's going to look like cultural spaces like Schaumburg Center you know, and any museum space that really wants to talk about Black culture. Um, having to think about food expansively. And so there are many ways that this work is going to um, show itself. I mean, Museum of Food and Drink is doing an exhibit next year around Black foodways. And so it's going to take low steady methodical movement but I don't know that it's going to look um one particular way I think it's going to take lots of disciplines lots of disparate disciplines and I think that it's going to take everybody kind of contributing their own points of view it's the Harlem Renaissance right like absolutely, in the midst of the Black Arts.
0: <laughs> absolutely. and to your point about um at, le- at least publications and more information I was in the um in the bookstore last weekend, and I'm walking through the cookbook section, of course, and it's just homogenous, and everything looks the same color, same food. Um, and I, you know, my it, and you know, my frustration was it wasn't so much that all the chefs look the same, and that you know the the you know the style of writing and the voices are still very similar to each other. My bigger issue was the lack of diversity in just cuisine overall. I, you know, like the more you can, the more you can cook outside of your comfort zone the better cook you are like it's just you know as a chef I kind of go if you don't challenge yourself to kind of go outside of your norm you don't get better you you essentially are cooking the same things just in a slightly different way maybe with a different you know group of seasonings but it's a a lot it's always you know redundancy and so for me it was I was more you know I was more bothered by the lack of of diversity um, in that in that space and then to To challenge people to create, to dig deeper and to deep dive into the history. And just just to find the techniques, just to find the flavor profiles, like not just you know, past the the cultural implications of that, but to to create better chefs, to create a better yep. food culture yep. is to kind of you know to integrate this as essential information and not secondary information, not like a, you know, one of the what do I say, one of those um kind of little feature cards in culinary history. It's you know, it's an integral part. You know, for me, I'm like black cook are an integral part of American history, and it and it oh, no. does and it's not reflected in his in, in American history just yet the way it should be, um, and you know and for if it wasn't for you know the in, bringing enslaved people into the continent. Um, it, it you wouldn't have a, an American cuisine, quite frankly, it just wouldn't exist. And so for me, it's like it's it's one of, you know, one of the major things that, you know, black and brown hands have contributed to the overall cultural history of the country at large is is food and and, and actual cuisine, full stop. Full stop. And so, yeah, it's full <laughs> stop. you know, yeah. most people are just like, what? I'm like, between jazz, hip hop and food, I don't know what you guys would offer the rest of the world. At this point, you don't have much to contribute to a global a global conversation. So, you know, in that in that way, um, what do you know, what can we, I guess, as a as a profession, as an industry start to do? Like, what do you see as kind of the next strategic move? Because, you know, it's, it's on us now to to do this in this to do this period and so like what do you what do you think what do you see as like the next strategic move um that's either already happening or that we do need to actually be making in order to kind of push this um push this activity uh, a little bit harder and find more progress Excellent
1: question. Really, I mean, I absolutely the, the thing that I'm up at night thinking about and, and it's sort of central to the way I move through the industry. Um, I'll say this, right? The thing I am most encouraged by is that no changes um no systemic change is overnight. And so the perspective of a decade has really been interesting for me because it's been this, this notion of these Sort of the germs of ideas that I thought I knew intuitively things I've posited over the years talking to everybody I mean from you know I called everybody when I started this thing I was literally just it was 40 people by degrees of separation look I'm in my 20s I want to do this work seriously what what is going on why are we not why do we not know who we are why do we not and it's just it was this sort of siren call to just like ring the alarm. I I wanna know from a Jessica. Harris. I wanna see what Ashley Mac has to say. I need I need the elders to tell me what's what. I need to know what to read. I need and so that starting point ten years later is looking at the to your point about the bookshelf, right? Like I I can I understand and I agree with you to a degree. Um that there is not as much there's not as much um courage in the publishing world to allow voices to just be and allow um Folks who you might not think represent these who is this this narrative that I think a lot of times media spaces are comfortable with that doesn't allow for an expansive, fully realized, disparate um, expression of who we are because again, blackness is not a monolithic experience, right? Like we have many, many experiences that sort of encapsulate how you move through the world, and that all has to be thrown up against the wall. It has to all be represented, but I guess. I'm encouraged because I look at a time where Jessica Harris's hog was literally groundbreaking. It was to me one of the only things we had that said the words out loud. Um, that we've been in these streets. Here's the proof, here's the sort of timeline because after that comes Michael Twitty's um cooking gene. Then comes Jermonical. Um Tony sister Martin's got a cookbook campaign to that. I'm looking at JBF last year with Gerald Guy and her black girl bacon. I'm looking at um chefs like Omar Tate who's working with an agent now, but a book is forthcoming that's gonna be multiple disciplines poetry, um, drawing art, different forms of art, as well as cooking, as well as his personal narrative memoir as a a form. Um, I'm looking at uh, even Kwame, like, you know, you look in a book like most um, of Young Black Chef or um, this sort of emblematic moments that that book sort of had like it or not and sort of mm. critique or not that book tells a story of his personal narrative that is diasporic it has his own flavor to it and exactly. it's gonna be a, a movie it's gonna be you know, i mean there's a sense that there's a, a momentum happening and so my strategic game plan at least in the work i'm seeing and where i'm sort of um hearing people talk about and seeing in terms of media spaces and sort of publishing, um, like online publications, magazines, thinking about is what do you actually have to say? To me, the Times article was absolutely kind of um, it was a it was a ba- it was a shot across the bow. It was to me the comp- the complaining that I've been hearing from Chester Cull saying, "Oh my goodness, we don't get a chance to to tell our stories. We don't. We don't there's not opportunities." This was first of all, a moment where the, the the biggest paper record is recognizing and reconciling um, the reality of Black identity in the zeitgeist. But to my mind, and what I'm encouraged by is that Why are we always contorting ourselves to be acceptable, thought of as valuable um, in Mason culture? We know we don't. We We have the cultural receipt. Since the birth of this nation, we have the receipt to tell us that we are uniquely American chefs. So the work I think is most interesting is... Knowing for ourselves the truth, there is not as much as necessary, but there is absolutely scholarship out there in these streets. So why, why are we not educating ourselves, reading everything possible is, is out here? So know, starting from that place, knowing your own, knowing our truth from the start and applying it to your career. Do your work. I want to talk about the dope Johnny um Johnny Rose in Houston, I'm talking about um, Eduardo in Seattle, I'm talking about Shawna Bailey in Savannah. If you are in restaurant spaces, do your thing without apology. If you want to write, be Korsha Wilson. Go to publications and pitch these stories that tell about who you are. Publish it. Be innovative. My Facebook is about to blow y'all's mind. It's not just... um, it's not just a cookbook it's not just memoir it is breaking form look at Lazarus Lynch his book is gorgeous and it is I mean he's out here profile style he's 25 years old that is what it's going to look like I think that this sense of um, being unapologetic about what you have to say as an artist it's not just come to the industry because it's a multi trillion dollar industry and you can cook what do you have to say and if you don't have anything to say maybe you shouldn't be doing this Have something dope to say and just say it. It doesn't have to look like one thing or another, it doesn't have to conform to the old tropes about what's credible in this work it has to be dope and it has to be authentic it has to be rooted if you start from that place i'm telling you the world has to listen and we had a a moment where all forms of media all forms of this this sort of collective calling like guys is shifting the restaurant industry is about to have it's about to blow up right there's a sense that these old models are crumbling around us we're seeing these old White restaurant groups crumble to the literal ground because they're not built on equity. They're not built in ways that are sustainable. And so, while we keep trying to play by these rules that we see aren't value, aren't equitable, and aren't sustainable, we have the blueprint. We have co. We have restaurants that have that are generational. They may be soul food. We have the blueprint. Mildred Council, Sylvia, so always, these, always, these restaurateurs understood in the '50s and '60s that. They, we just lost um, Leah Chase. These restaurants, don't. I'm not talking about the food waste. I'm not saying we have to limit ourselves to one particular point of rest. I'm talking about the blueprint for longevity and for the cultural and for the community empowerment. These blueprints are here. We have, before these, I'm in New York, Norma Darin, um Miss Mamie Spoonbread. These people, these women, especially women, but these restaurants, Alexander Smalls, um, these folks had... The blueprint, there's nothing new under the sun. We're not reinventing anything, but there's gotta be more sort of generational continuity and more sense that we're not out here making up things as we go along. We literally have the we have the blueprint right here. Why are we not paying attention and using those um, resources, right? Like when the economy got trying in 08 and the, the, the downturn we about to see in the next two to, to um, five years, we have always been able to weather those storms. we all exactly we have, to, we have to occupy these spaces more more responsibly with less resources. So we built for this. Right, right. So, why, you know what I mean? Like, um, there's a sense that we're going to be okay. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh. oh, yeah. It's funny that 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 idea of understanding that we aren't making things up as we go along. It was because the last, um, the last interview I did, it it hasn't posted just yet, but we were, Mm -hmm. I literally was talking about that because it had been sitting with me for a couple of days. This thought of, we don't, we have not seen ourselves um, as technicians. Uh, We're not not represented in in general media as technicians, and we definitely don't represent to each other as these kind of detail-driven technicians. And I feel like that, just the language of, of strategy or strategic strategy, strategic thinking, um, this idea of a blueprint, this idea of building on a foundation that is already mapped out. Like those are, that's a very, um, like analytical mindset. That's not often celebrated within our community. It's like, no black Black people in general are technicians. We look at finer detail, even though what we present to the public might be big and colorful and loud, and it's in its grand. It's grand in its, represent, in its presentation, but the, if you go behind the scenes, there's so much nuance and technique involved in the execution of that that you will likely never see unless you know us and it's funny cuz like when you started to see the um the release of like the behind the scenes for like a Beyonce tour or you know things like that how much work she's put in like the fine the finest detail and those small decisions of what to wear and makeup and hair and how people are standing and formations people are in and do we put the you know the lift here or do we put the lift over there on the stage and she's hiring a crew of to put lighting together and they're like you when people started to see like there's a level of work to the presentation and you might look at her uh, performance at Coachella and go, it's huge. It's gigantic. It's like almost overwhelming. But then you look at that behind the scenes and go, but it's sweaty and detailed and nuanced and and she's a technician. And so like that's the thing that people were always trying to reconcile with people like Michael Jackson when they saw him. It was like, no, oh, these guys are technicians. They are extremely skilled in their craft. And, you know, that's another word that doesn't seem to be synonymous with um just Black people in in general as craftsmen. Like that's just not a word that people use to describe us. And I think because we have not, because a a generation of people have not seen us in that light, we don't approach building these industries in the way we know how to do them from that place. We kind of have to, we look at it from a showmanship side. Like, well, it doesn't look a certain way So we probably shouldn't do it. And I was like, but there's, but the people that we are building the industry on the backs of the people who have those generational and like restaurants that look like us, they are technicians. They are, they know about, they look at details in a way that other people doesn't, the other people don't look at detail. And so, at this point, for me, I'm just like, how do we shift not the external conversation, but the internal conversation? Like, what, what do we need to do for ourselves to understand, like, wait a minute, we are fully capable of this. People have done it before us. It's there. And it's not outside of our skill set. Like it's it's a natural space to think about. I'm like, oh, so think about your grandmom's house or your mom's house and how much detail goes into what they cook, how they decorate, when they execute an event. Um, I'm like if you've ever been to a black cookout, a black wedding, a black church, there's a lot of there's a lot of detail there. <laughs> so there's a lot of Lot of nuance going into the execution of that and um so for me I'm like what do we need to what, what does it look like for us to shift the internal conversation because I think a lot of it does start there like if you you know like the, to your point about if you have something to say say it and say it your way and I think most people are like but I don't know technically how to get there i don't know the detail of that well what if i don't have i understand the overarching story but i don't understand how to dial down into the detail and it's like i think people don't realize that it's instinctual for us like if we just turn it on but i don't know if anyone knows where the light switch is
1: hmm. that's, I mean, that's a fair point and i think the thing i was most struck by when i started my own work my work was more that um not not at all that i think that um intellectual rigor is not critical because I think that that's that's a central sort of theme that is not missing, but is really the the, the secret sauce. Um, there's got they, there's a degree of um, rigor that needs to be infused into the work we do. You, to your point about um, technical excellence and those, you know, those notions of um, how we make magic happen and make it look easy, that's a that's a really I think that's a generational thing as well. That is something i have been really pondering, I think about the Anna Lewis's, I think about um, the restaurant tours like the Alexander Smokes. I think about Patrick Clark a lot recently. And I think that there's a sense that because they they didn't Show their work. They didn't show legwork because we don't have a lot of times um, with the, the elders that have passed. Um, because we weren't having, like you said, the strategic conversation about what it was really going to take to get to do work on that on that level. Um, there's a sense that, and it, it may be a, a affectation of this generation. I don't know what the what the disconnect is, but this sense that oh, this is just intuitive. We just out here, like you know, just you get your degree from college school. You just you want to cook, so you're going to do it and just do a pop up, whatever. And it's just gonna it's just gonna be hot. No, no, no. There is literally <laughs> Sorry. There's, okay. there's, there's a sense of I just I, I don't know really how to say this is, is a is a rigor intellectual rigor that goes into Absolutely. what you're saying your your craft is. If that's what... if you're saying that you are. The, we, we throw around the word chef a lot we use that work really freely and if you are really doing this work if you really about this life what does that mean for you what is, what are you reading what are you investing in how what are you how are you um reinvesting in yourself professionally what are you doing that makes you like what's your life work what's what's your beyonce level flag what are you doing what are you how are you out here making sure that what you're putting out into the world what you have to say as a, as a credible work chef in a traditional of James Hammond and the tradition of Hercules and tradition of Patrick Clark and tradition of Edna Lewis. If you have that legacy behind you, literally right there for you to, to absorb and to look at and to sort of be inspired by, if that's what you're saying you do, what is, what is, how, we, what's your practice? What's the, what's the level of intellectual rigor that you are infusing into your work? And that doesn't have to look like one thing, but it should be rigorous. Right. It should right. be. Intensive. It should be and there's weight. this I mean, I don't know how. I mean, like literally, there. I'm. I, I say it's 200 books you should be reading. It's you know. <laughs> it's oh, you. I'm t- I mean, 18 year olds. When I'm, I say 40 percent of the emails I get from my website, our parents wanted me to talk to their young people about coming to this industry. Wow. I'm like, I yes, well yes, pre um Kona school student. I need you to retake the country listen first I need you to read Verti Mae in first I need you right. to understand um, the the subversive dopeness of Verti Mae before I can talk to you about why you want to come to this work mm. I need you to be I need you to have reference I need you to know why you want to come to this work I'm not saying you I need to know what the long game is for you but what's the spark of inspiration because if you can think of anything else to do in this other than it comes in this industry do that first because it's not a game um and it's too much it's too many lives lost too many lives marginalized too many lives overlooked too much um intellectual rigor that's been ignored and sort of um overlooked in a way that sort of like you said um dismisses the the strategic and technical excellence to just have you out here playing and so to my mind it looks like lots of it looks like what it basically looks like what what do you have to say what and what what does that look like and what work are you putting in? I mean because I'm telling you that the moment you, you can't read um Travel notes. Without knowing for sure that we don't have to play by anybody else's rules, Gordon was gifted to her soul and was 18 in a moment where, you know, she had watched Josephine Baker go abroad. She had Baldwin as her reference, and she said, "I know, I know what's fly. I know what I am. I know what our food ways are." She What's the rest of why don't I, why don't any, why doesn't anybody else know what's what's the rest of the world have this that's better than what we have and so she traveled. she got on a boat in the days when you did that she didn't come north she went she went uh, she went east you know like she she went um, to travel through France and through London and wanted to know what was so. Delicious, what well, this cuisine that we're saying is better than is more elite than she's like. That's number <laughs> what we have back home, and we do it better, and it tastes and it's dope. And she came home and she was one of our first calling anthropologists. But that takes a degree of um faith and and like belief in the power of our culture, and it's the starting point that to me, in, in my own experience says that if you send to us, you send to our culture, you send to who we are as people, not exclusively, there's absolutely um, room for exploration, room for play, room for for cooking, whatever you want to cook. But if you start from a place that recognizes the power of who we are from a cultural point of reference, and that's a, that's a central theme, that's, a, that's where you start from. That's what Beyonce, is, the, the, the power, you, you, you brought Beyonce up, but like, I think that that's, that's a prime example. But there's a lot of investment in her. There's there's, there's money invested. There's time invested. There's an intellectual rigor to what she does in the world that does not pay um, fiscal dividend in the way that it looks traditionally like it should. Mm. But it's investment in the power of imagery. Right. Right. right restaurant groups like like Eduardo to my mind he's the told we should be looking at Mashaun Bailey a told we should be yeah. looking at oh, yeah. They have restaurants that are three and five years and that are showing um equitable growth. Yes. They're showing how you maintain your brand, not just as a flash in the pan, but as a a brand that is fostering young people, fostering this next generation of cooks. It's is showing you how to be in these streets rooted but also viable, right? Exactly. It's, exactly. It's about sort of not having to play by other people's rules but but knowing that we have our own if you literally just start from a place of sensitiveness and start from whatever whatever your passion that German passion is for you starting from there and growing equitably outward that's,
0: that's the secret sauce, man. Like that's yeah. A, oh yeah, that's the business. Definitely. and I like I love the word you used was uh the was practice. And you know when we look at uh, certain professions like um medicine and a few and and, and law, the word practice is applied to the professional, not ne- not just the student, but at the professional level, at the the person who's actively working um, in that field is it, they refer to what they do as a practice. And so yeah you know, to apply that to this conversation. To And it's, I think it really, it feels like it, you know, that applying, committing yourself to furthering your own education and, absor- yeah. and absorbing the work that's already done, reading the books, it creates a holistic point of view. Yeah. It's not just um, looking at a, I'm going to be in this restaurant, I'm going to cook these, cook these a few, you know, make these plates, put them out and go home for the night. It creates an entire... Worldview around what you do, and I feel like what happens is people are still kind of in that space of, well, I just need the job, and this is the quickest way to make that happen. If I, you know, I don't feel like I'm suited for necessarily a traditional college classroom, and I don't necessarily want any of these other jobs, but I need to do something with myself, so I'm gonna just go ahead and do this because it's a job. And it's like, well, there's a point mm. where you have to make a decision about. Who you're going to be, even in that, it's you know, I'm like, are yeah. you going to just work? Or are you going to become a craftsman? Are you going to apply yourself to the practice? Are because once you decide to become a practitioner you do become a bit more aggressive about looking for information. As long as you're just working to get by, you don't really think of it. There's no priority to that. But The minute you decide to be Mm -hmm. a practitioner and a craftsman, you're just like, okay, so what else don't I know? What else could I know? Where is this information available to me? And so you pursue it relentlessly. You have an insatiable appetite for it. It's like, okay, so what more can I go do? What more can I find? Who else can I talk to? What other voices exist? Even the one One's in opposition of mine <laughs> yeah especially it's, come yeah. on because it's only going yeah. to sharp, it's only going to sharpen who you are your skill and your point of view i'm mean, mm-hmm. like you know because anything that can challenge okay what do i currently believe about what i do and the effects of what i do i remember a few weeks a few weeks back i was thinking about because like my current um my current day job i uh, am a, a city manager for a corporate caterer right now And I was looking at the work of a caterer because it's such an interesting position to play in the food industry Mm -hmm. and feed large numbers of people in a very short amount of time in a very organized, methodical fashion, is it takes a lot. It's a different skill set for sure. And and a lot of people are not suited for it. They can do one plate at a time, but to really execute a catered service is it's an orchestra. And so I I was looking at what we do and I was like, past that. You know, past the technical side of that and the practical side of it, what we do is, for me, I think one of the more one of the noblest things any human being can do: feed somebody. And looking at it in the context of, like, I when I worked in Philadelphia, I worked for a nonprofit that would revamp school lunch programs, and um, and we did it based in the within the parameters of the national school lunch program and understanding the and still trying to provide a nutritious, interesting meal for young people so that they felt that they were important because you know that couldn't, because people just fail to recognize that feeding somebody really speaks to them about how you feel about them directly. And so you know, be, having the privilege of serving these kids and then, you know, all those a few years later sitting in this position and I'm feeding working adults at their jobs, but the same thought was triggered. I was like, a lot of the kids would come to school and the meal we served them was the only meal they were gonna get that day. And the, looking at the challenges of uh, food inequality, malnutrition, um, uh, just, the, just a lack of resource for a lot of families to feed themselves, how many parents are, are going hungry to make sure they can feed their kids. And I just thought about the number of people, a number of adults we feed in a workplace at their death, I don't know how many of those adults, this is the only meal they're going to get that day because, you know, cause of the circumstances that they're in. And I'm just like, the work is noble and we don't, we up to this point, it's really not treated as such. It's not, it used to be, it was, well, an honorable profession. I'm like, but are you really understanding? Like someone's giving you an opportunity to offer them something that they put in their bodies that's a that's a, a weighty responsibility and it it deserves your time and attention to educate yourself it deserves your interest it deserves your commitment to continue uh, to find new conversations and new sources of information because of what how uh, because it's just so important like the thing that you put the things we put in the body fuel life and so if you can't if you're jumping into this profession because it's like oh, I just need something to do you want, you need to re like you said you need to reevaluate maybe take a step back and decide if this is really what you want to do
1: Yep, I'm um, to your point about even just sort of you think about school lunch program. I Me, mean, we don't have a school lunch program without the Panthers, right? Like we, the we we, we sort of um, we dismiss. The, the reach of the Black Panther Party. What I meant about blueprint earlier was also that it's dis- disciplined to give us a blueprint. blueprint. Um, you know, you're talking about women like Georgia Gilmore, who um, club from nowhere, sort of backdoor restaurants during the Civil Rights Movement. Where these women who were domestics, were cooks in, um, you know, c- college cafeterias, but also the restaurants of the day who were, I mean, when, back in the days when Black and Brown people, specifically women, um, were really the culinary workforce. In Lifeblood of this country, Um, they literally fed the, the civil rights era. But then the, the Pancastes come along. They they they're our first school lunch program. They they understood the power of food as resistance. They understood that um they they, they give us the blueprint for um our current school lunch program. But when you look back at look somebody like Rashid Nuri who was in agriculture at the time he he was he, he's responsible for their growing program. It wasn't just um free lunch it wasn't just a free lunch program. It was um, a network of black farmers and um, urban agriculturalists who were feeding communities across the country um, outside of rural um, agricultural spaces. So this conversation we have, and I think um, currently about what what black foodways look like what it means to be a black chef it has to be multidisciplinary and the intellectual regards i'm talking about as well is not just about the books you're reading but where you source the ingredients i um, can watch wash Urban urban uh, black farmers and urban gardens association is literally a network of national black farmers who are in your community now who you know have the microgreens have the new small produce. the why, why I, I live in east harlem um Eight years of catering at East Harlem, not realizing there were eight other women of color operating small-based food businesses in my community. Why weren't we buying as a CSA all of our produce? Why weren't we thinking more strategically about how we were engaging um, the Black farmer community? Thinking about people like Monica White and um, uh, uh, Leah Penniman have two recent books about the sort of subversive power of Black farming. Um, th- these are these are also, these are other blueprints that sort of give us life and give us um, tools to use um, in our community. Sort of show us about cooperative and the, the power of um, collective resources. That is going to take um, sort of thinking more broadly about how our but also how we navigate the food space because it's, it's going to take disruption. It's going to take, um, thinking outside the box in lots of ways about, um, how we run restaurants, how we navigate our catering careers, what the pop-up space looks like, what educate, it's educate all these things. And so, um, back to your point about like, what, like the point I was earlier about like academic rigor it, or intellectual rigor, it's about, this rabbit hole, once you start, you can't, you can't unknow the truth, right? Like, you can't, you can't. and so there's, there's this sense of, it's not, I don't think that it's, it's not one, um there's not one line like there's not a checklist of things anybody is doing but it's literally just a start it starts from someplace right because this rabbit hole will get you and lead you to everything else i mean this should, black drama conference i'm telling you that i i'm i every year wish that more black chefs would be there in that room it's going cause it takes. i think lots of times in these silos right like The the black arts movement, um, the sort of in our other artistic disciplines, um, black advertising, all these other black spaces are having these professional conversations similar to the one we're having. Everybody's having the same circular conversation, not realizing that we were all in the same place at the same time, cross disciplines we will be having we' will be able to share best practices in a way that will feed everybody's work. Um I don't know if you know Colleen Vincent, but she and Clay Williams have um an organization called Black Food Folk. And it literally is grown out of we were all in New orleans um maybe I feel like it would have been October, last October at this point the Howard County has got to fall down for this thing called Gumble Jubilee and we're all in the same place and it's a sense of like just show up for each other like literally just show up it doesn't have to be like it's not about clicks. it's not about like it's about being in one place celebrating us across the country it should be cons- cons- consistent and continuous and we so he wanted to do whole cow barbecue because traditionally um, Black pit masters would cook a whole cow but would never get to consume it because if you have a whole cow, you're not going to, that's expensive animal. Like and so um, to do whole cow barbecue was sort of a reclamation, the sort of sense that like we're going to have these Black chefs, these Black food folks in one place having a celebratory um, sort of like ritualistic um, meal in the heart of New Orleans. We got to sit with Leah Chase and she's telling, you know, she's giving us these pearls. And so they got, we all got back from this beautiful weekend and they just, they, there was this sense of just like, why does everything have to be so complicated? Literally just get home and just just see. And so Black Food Folks is literally just about um, these like sort of talk back around the country. Why, it should, if you, if you, whatever city you in, it could just look like a Monday evening in a restaurant that's already slow. Ring the bat signal, ring the alarm, and get everybody down in one room. You don't have to just be chefs; it should be educated. it should be art- artists, it should be just be in the same room. You don't know what resources you have community-wise. We keep saying we keep pretending like we don't have community. We have. You understand how dope we are? You, you know, but we we have. People with so many different disciplines, just be in the same room. You don't know what you're working on. That you need a fresh set of eyes for. You don't know what you you want to do. Pop. Here's here's the dope. You know, cinematographer, ph- photographer. Um, here's the people on production side. Here's the folks who been through the, the you know the sort of media training. Here's the folks who have cookbooks. Everybody in the same room. What are you working on? Blackfoot folks' events are literally just. Everybody in the same room. What are you working on? What do you have to offer the the collective in terms of your expertise and resources? What do you need from the collective? It's
0: as simple as that. I know that it's it's you know for me that idea of um, asking the right question will send you down the rabbit will send you down that rabbit hole. I think that a lot of people they just aren't curious enough, and you know even if you simply start with the question. Not so much are we dope, but how dope are we? And you and you seek to answer that question. The rabbit hole is infinite. Like you can keep going down that sucker for a long, long time and not out and and not outrun the information, um, because it'll always take you to a place that will surprise you. And um, so for me, I'm just like what, we, you know, to start asking that question more frequently. That how dope are we? How how deep does the well go? And because there's just a, there's so much information down there. And, you know, I'm like that 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 curiosity will drive I mean, for me. That's I, I make almost all of my decisions about life and career based on that. I'm like, I'm driven by my curiosity. What questions can I ask? What questions can I answer? Um, because you'll always unfold more and it's, you can't, I always tell people, you can't outrun your curiosity. As long as you turn that bad boy on, it'll keep pushing you into new places that you haven't been before that are going to be uncomfortable, that will surprise you, that will challenge you. And that's how you do that. And so for me, I'm like, can we, you know, as a, as a community, because you're right, we do have community. I think that that we have allowed outside messages to seep in and inform and inform our thinking as a collective. It's like no, we have community. It's just an automatic. Black people create community wherever we are in a space. If you go to a conference for anything and there's four black people in the room, if if everybody is is on it, they look. You will find a community, and it's like that's just what we do. We do and we do it for other people. It's not not even just each other if you're in you know wherever we are we will try we will create a sense of community among whoever is with us and I think that's another one of the major appeals of black people overall in general is this idea that we are we spark community and inspire community no matter where we go and no matter who we're with because people are some of the best people I know and it's just like I know it's because we invite you and welcome you into this space as a member of the community. So, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. So that's.
1: I mean, I think sometimes too, we we think about our rush. Like, um, this is this this moment we're having where I think. Um, I don't know. I just because we have a lot. We have lots of like sort of cliche kind of sentiments about like setting the seats to tables and all of this. And I think that um, the thing that I'm, I've been most interested in is not even like the sort of I build my own table. I don't need to t- I'm flipped this. T- but it's mostly about, um, like you said, black spaces are always inclusive. Right, like we the way we build community, the way we navigate through the world, we don't have a luxury of exclusivity and like when we are out here, um, in resistance spaces and um just in, in, in the way we have to move through the world, like our like our narratives automatically um benefit everybody else, right? And so it's a lot of like it's a lot of emotional and like um a lot of just there's a lot of trauma is not the right word but it takes a lot you know Absolutely. it takes a lot of energy to navigate the world as a black person and there's yeah. a, certain, a lot of times in the work that we do um that we ha- we are innately thinking about and thinking strategically about being inclusive, right? Like we have to, we have to I- integrate spaces and sort of navigate mainly white spaces all the time. And so there's a, a fatigue that comes from that. And I think that we also don't like acknowledge the that fatigue sometimes. I think that we, um, because we always on hustle mode, because we always um, mm. in spaces where we have to be hyper aware and be dexterous and be, Um, you know, that there's a... that we don't recognize the, like... I mean, it's a tool and I've chosen to look at it as a tool um, that we have in innately that like we because we have to be so dexterous, we have the ability to to um, adjust to trauma and like to, to economic, economic downturns or challenges. We we just we built in a way that um, makes us more prepared than our counterparts to just be out in the streets and hustle. And that's a good thing, but it's also an exhausting Ooh, yeah. thing. And I think that we should be more gentle with us themselves um in in the recognition of that fact because i think that some of the collective breath we have or some of the frustration yeah, folks have right they just want to take a breath they just want to navigate things like everybody else and not have uh, to oh. like, everything be on a, a, a hundred you know why does it have to be a hundred when it turns out everybody else is just fine and so my like utopia mm. would be a day when we can like you know sort of navigate in a in a more gentle way, um, and also the thing you said about community is is so interesting because I always I'm always concerned when when I hear especially Black chefs say they don't have people don't support them unless so they don't have community, and I wonder sometimes about how we qualify it. What what's showing up for you looks like. So I sometimes um, I think that we aren't specific in what we ask for, what we need from community. And it's a hard thing to know what you need. Like I said, we operate from a place of hustle and operate from a place of like just exhaustion and sort of this hamster wheel, it seems to be perpetual and you don't seem to have traction in the work you're doing, whatever. And I get the frustration of that. I I do. I'm not like, I I just choose positivity in general. But I guess I think the, the interesting posture change would be, to, to really be clear about what you want and need from community, right? Like, the, and, and if you don't see the community that you want, build it, right? But there's this sense that, like, um, I, don't, I just, every time I hear a chef say, um, especially a Black chef, and cause again, like, the work I do is all about community, right? I'm in these different circles, and I hear it sometimes, mm. folks lament, Um black folks don't support xyz and i get that i'm not suggesting that those realities aren't there what i'm saying is um you can't control what other folks do right you can't control um really anything except how you move through the world and so to my mind there's lots of times where community showing up for you might not look like what you think it should look like but there's absolutely resources that you're not tapping because you haven't recalibrated what showing up looks like. And so thinking more broadly about what support and community looks like, what you really need to do the work you want to do, and recalibrate expectations. Because I think that there's a lot of negative energy gets placed into um, antiquated notions of um, support and community, that if you have looked shifted resources a little bit, your thought process a little bit, um, you recognize you really do have i'm looking at people like ben burkett like black farmers to me have um some of the most grassroots moves entrenched most culturally significant um collective communities and they do right. it because they recognize that we out here alone and we have to support one another we have to be um, invested in everybody's like all both rises kind of thing. And I think mm. it's very easy to get mired in the superficialities in of the colony space. Absolutely. And not really recognize that like community has to look different to us. It's got to be more entrenched and if we sort of just make that sort of posture change, that recalibration, all of a sudden you recognize the power of what you really do have in community and just that sort of Recalibration of expectations would change a lot of narratives that aren't really particularly productive.
0: It's true. It's true. And I, I, I've been kind of exploring that question about you know support and what does support look like um, for people in, in you know across all industries, especially Black people. When you do have this idea of, and I see it all the time, um, you know on Instagram feeds and in social media spaces and stuff about Black people, you know, buy Black. You need to make sure you support Black businesses. And while the, the, abs- the sentiment is absolutely necessary and true, um, you know, and if we are in a unique position where we actually do have to say it because, you know, we, because we aren't the, uh, the economical default as far as, or the, or the, the, commerce default, as far as where, where people purchase, what people purchase and who they purchase from, we do have to make a, a kind of a specific request of each other to make sure that, you know, we are, we are putting our dollars in certain places. And I'm, I'm always curious, like, like you said, you know, when you're talking about, I don't have their support, you know, are we talking about, you know, monetarily, are we talking about, you just don't feel like people are showing up for you physically, like they're not present. Um, I think, I know for me, a lot of conversations fall into kind of a fiscal conversation. Well, where's the money? I know, I hear you say you support me. I hear you say you love the product or the service or, you know, whatever I'm doing, but you're not purchasing anything. You're not, you know, and I, you know, I think the, the thing we have to understand is just because someone's spending money on something doesn't necessarily mean they support it. And doesn't necessarily mean they love it, you know. So it's like you know, dollars are not an automatic confirmation of the quality of anything. And so for me, there's you know, I also feel like you you out here buying car insurance, but you're not a big fan of car insurance because it's taken, you know, it's taken from your budget where you might be might spend money elsewhere. We spend money on a lot of things we don't necessarily like, but are of, are essential to life. So you know, when I talk to people about you know asking for fiscal and financial support I'm like it has to look different because you know as we know in the restaurant industry and in the food industry it's an exchange of value I'm paying you for something that I value equally that's why you know so when I talk to people even in general like when I run into a stranger I'm standing in line at a grocery store or at a restaurant and I overhear a conversation about oh my gosh I can't believe that cost that much why would they even charge that much for like a plate of chicken or whatever and understanding that on the other side I have had to sit down and look at a food budget and figure out how to cost out a meal and how much am I going to pay for this particular product and then how much of that cost am I going to extend to the diner and so you know I think people have to be very transparent about what it looks like and like you said earlier what does it look like to really do this like I think we've we've, we have created a culture of You don't have any details, which gives people a false sense of success. So you have things like, you know, American Idol and The Voice and Chopped and a lot of like the competition shows kind of lend themselves to this thinking that people watch the audience watches, they see the kind of the finished product and go, well, I can do that, you know. I don't it don't it don't take all I mean that's all it takes to to get that far is that's all it takes to do so-and-so stand in line for an audition or submit an application and then get casted and I'm like okay so we've created this you know this space and culture where it's like there you lose you know there's a lack of respect for how hard something actually is and how much is invested and how much you pour into and how much of yourself you give to something to see it work because on the opposite end of that you do see restaurants shuttering and closing down and you're just like that restaurant's been around forever or this you know this particular store has been open for you know for a decade or more and now now all of a sudden it's closing and so we do have this uh what's the word um kind of expendable energy around things that people work really really hard to execute and so we've created this kind of reductive attitude towards so many things at this point and that includes food and like the current uh fight between you know what who has the best chicken sandwich chick-fil-a or popeyes and i'm like do you know how many small little black restaurants out there make better chicken sandwiches than both of them like for real for real y'all Is this what we're doing? Like, is this where you want the narrative to go? Because like a fried chicken sandwich is an easy narrative for black people to come into and really bust that discussion up quite a bit. It's like, well, y'all can, can y'all can continue with this argument between both of these kind of, both of these white owned chain restaurants about their chicken sandwich. And we'll be over here talking about actual real chicken sandwiches, like, when you're ready to actually talk about it come see us but it's a conversation like that you we or we just kind of feed commercially and i'm just like but well, this is one of them really great conversations that can turn into a very a, a large discussion about how we view what's good what tastes good what actually is good and it's like don't shy away from those kind of conversations i'm like you letting people who don't believe in salt and pepper talk about chicken sandwiches right now and it's, hey. it's, and it's a conversation no. we should be part of. <laughs> <laughs> well, cause so here's the
1: thing, right? Like I've been thinking recently a lot, I'm right I'm working on my first book of hold on, and there's a whole section I have around Sofu, right? And this there's this conversation we have around black food ways where there were chefs ten years ago who wouldn't even talk to me about black identity in our work. They were chefs first. am out here I'm I'm cooking cuisine and I, I'm okay. my, I'm not black I'm not black um first, I'm a chef first and there's no place essentially for black food right? So that a lot of them are out here you know all of a sudden recognizing the power of black cuisine and i'm not people's journeys are what they are and you know kind of coming people come to the reality of the power of our culture when they're ready but i failed to say i've been thinking a lot recently about social restaurants to my mind, cause I live in Harlem, right? I live in East Harlem, but, you know, sort of Harlem soul food is cutting kind of big with this. On Sunday mornings, you can't um, walk through West Harlem, West Side, <clears throat> without tripping over white folks coming up um, on the, the, the tour buses wanting to see the gospel. Absolutely, Baptist Church has to have a separate service um, so that the, the tourists can kind of come and experience um, gospel tradition, the gospel brunch, um, just these. Institutions um, that are Harlem based that are kind of the bedrock of um, the sort of soul food, black food waste narrative born out of the 60s. Right. And so I look at a restaurant like Sylvia's, okay, not just I'm not calling by you but I'm looking at sort of soul food restaurants that are iconic, but are um, maybe not as modern. Right. They should be right. They could be and aren't able to and are maybe trying to compete with the modern colonies, like guys. and it's not it's not a comfortable fight to my mind social restaurants are sort of public trust but the power of that public trust is they're like historic financial business blueprint right the people like Sylvia Woods the reason Sylvia's is still standing still operating is because Miss Woods understood the power of real estate she owns that block so Come on. Sylvia's gonna be in that spot regardless oh. of what you think about the food, regardless of her, because that building is hers that family understands know. the power of the real estate right Let I looked at be someone to know. like Moja Council we lost two years ago Miss Council she started her re- Mama dids restaurant in Chapel Hill North Carolina she started her restaurant with like $43 for lunch, earned that profit and made dinner. And so this restaurant is built and sort of sort of um, maintained through this notion of manageable, reasonable, equitable expectation and reinvesting itself, right? There are so restaurants all around the country that are changing hands generationally, but maybe aren't changing hands generationally. You're seeing our culture shudder. You're seeing this history shudder because we didn't see the power in um, generational memory. We don't require more of, we don't pay what is fair for um, the rising cost of food. So food, black food ways, whatever you want to call it, um, our food culture is so entrenched in how uh, who we are and how we were brought up. So you see people, I'm not paying X, Y, and Z for this, whatever. Um, and I, And that's a fair there's a fair part of the conversation that requires more of our restaurants, requires more of our food waste. Ask that we think more broadly about modernizing these this cuisine. And so for every Sylvia's every um, you know, community soul food restaurant, there's a, a new soul, sort of modern soul food restaurant. Right. And I I'm right. I'm not I'm not saying I have a problem with modern soul food. What I have a problem with is this idea of elevation when we not we're not sort of rooted in history. And so, right. Like, right. so just I say all that to say that I think a lot of times we, we have these conversations about our food ways collectively and what we're gonna invest in, what we pay our dollars for. Not recognizing that in lots of ways, um we don't do justice to the um, what it really takes to maintain these businesses. Generational businesses that probably were struggling through, um, that, are, that are trying to compete in a moment that is... A wildly, vastly different environments than they were when they, they opened. These restaurants that didn't have to contend with the, um, you know, sort of greasy, um, slimy narrative around real estate schemes and all of this. Um, so many, so many communities from Detroit, Detroit to Chicago to to, to Oakland to um, Atlanta. Um, the conversation that restaurateurs are having to contend with around just opening your doors, just paying people a living wage, just, I mean, all those elements go into what we pay for our food waste. And so many people of color aren't willing to recognize the fact that our restaurants have to be a public trust. There has to be a sense of, um, you know, sort of the recognition of what it really takes to open these restaurants and be sustainable. Why Why a lot of our restaurants are fast casual, not, um, the rarefied air, right? yeah. yeah. like Eleven Madison yeah. Park and Per Se and French Laundry and Alenia. they pay you they're charging you these insane prices and without qualification. They know they they set the tone for how the public engages their their cuisine, their their brand. But even those models aren't necessarily equitable. New York City right now, hotel line cooks make like $35, an hour. The cooks, of per se, make $18. How is that? You know what I mean? Like that, 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 there's a real talk conversation that we're not being honest about when it comes to what it really takes to do, to be in a restaurant space. Because some of this stuff has nothing to do with food. It has nothing to do with what you cook as a, as a, as a professional. Um, tactician right like before you even get a, a, a chance to define cuisine you have to have your doors open and all of that is like, things that have nothing to do with how talented you are anything and then so if you so if you see a restaurant who actually has their doors open and actually is trying to you know present to the public what they do what they have to say um but then you, continue, you have to contend with folks not even wanting to pay the dollars because it's just soul food. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a conversation that we not we need to be more honest about
0: other Oh, absolutely. I remember when um, Anthony Bourdain had a... I had, I had, sparked a very interesting conversation about you know the you know for lack of a better term ethnic food in the country in this country and why people believe you know mexican food should be cheap or chinese food should be cheap and it was just like you know you just go ahead and throw soul food in there too and and again it's it's really a perception versus reality thing because all of those restaurants and all of all of them are businesses first And, you know, I told them like, it's a business first and foremost. And it just depends on what your final product, what your end user product is going to be. Some people sell websites. Some people sell shoes. Restaurants sell food. But it's mm-hmm. still a practice. It's still a practice of business there, and so to understand that no one's out here doing this for their health, they got employees to pay, a building yeah. to maintain, you know, licenses to pay for it. Because if none of those things were in place, your experience in that place would be Man. subpar. And so it's like, you know, you want a restaurant to have a good health rating. That requires yeah. cleaning products. That requires a dish crew. That requires that people are trained in um, food safety which costs money like they just people don't understand that it is a business first and you can't even open your doors unless all of those things are in place and half and most of the time like most businesses you spend the first few years just paying those debts back to get yourself to get those stores open, there's no profitability there. It takes three yep. to four years to, to actually be profitable. And then when it comes to you know, it's interesting that there's um, like the the couple of interviews I've done with people with the ladies who work in wine and who work mm-hmm. in wine spaces, either as producers or sellers or educators. We've been talked we've talked a lot about legacy and about how wine yeah. is one of those very unique. Um, businesses that are generational intentionally Mm. and it's it's rare that you see that in other play in other industries and so you know but it's also wine is a product that grows in value the older it gets and you know as as a black nation as a black community we don't we haven't had a conversation around what are we going to value in that way? What is it that we do and offer to the rest of the world that we can tell the rest of the world that as this gets older, it gets more expensive because it has more value? and we don't we don't have conversations about that because we are you know like because then we have to start then we have to be honest about our you know about how we spend our money and the fact that the Mm -hmm. black dollar only stays in the community for less than two hours and the fact that like so then we'd have to have a real honest conversation with each other about okay this is what we're doing and these are the behaviors we're engaged in right now so we really won't be able to sustain these the, the our ideals if we don't change our behavior and shift our thinking about them amen so yeah um, well go ahead go ahead
1: no, no, just because I think the other thing too, like the, to the point I was making earlier about like um, disparate disciplines, right? Like, it's it even just in sort of the, the, the food and beverage space, right? Like, I think that it's, it, it's so important that chefs and farmers and winemakers and beer, you know, brew um, masters, everybody needs to be in the same room, right? Because to your point about generational, um, generational, um, the time pass and sort of the power of generation, the power of like blueprint and continuity, like, these are conversations. That I think restaurateurs tours would be. just think about people like Mac McDonald and sort of Black Venice Association and just or African American Venice Association and just always these, these like spaces where we were always the only. But we had to create communities. Like the in wine world, like what they did what um Chef Mac I mean um what um Mac McDonald and those guys did um with African American Vendors Association was essentially say we want to we we should be in these wine streets and we want to make sure that we have a collective that shares resources that makes us a a player in Sonoma, just like the white boys, just like these other folks. And I mean, I just I just think that just to this idea of what um, we were talking about earlier, just this notion of um, we have community-based resources. We have blueprints for how to build longevity and community. They might not look like or might not be in the space that you think they, they're they going to be in, but they, they, I mean, like you said, the, just pay attention to wine folks. Um, there's a young lady named Ashton Berry, um, and we went down for her resistance. She and Kassira Hill have an um, organization called uh, Radical Exchange. And he did a, a conference called Resistance Serve during February last this last February, and these young women in the the beverage space, bartenders, look at like look at ambassadors, um, show like a lot of like establishment food folks the power of the liquor space and the, the resources that um you know liquor sponsorship and wine sponsorship have um to get the thing you want to get done done right like we don't think about the sort of dexterity that the the want um the wine and spirit side has um because of different financial models right like there's a just this, this sense to look at the collective in detroit fort um that is a a, a restaurant bar Um, uh, uh, I think it's uh, they have like a um, like a uh, grocery store these four women had uh, across their business, if there's two sets of businesses, um, we're occupying the food space in disparate, splice, disparate disciplines and co- collectively form an organization that thinks more broadly about how to navigate all those spaces. Because you're looking at best practices from all these different um, points of view, right? Like we need best practices from the wine folks to show us how to have better practices in our restaurants. We need the chefs to sort of be the eyes to. Um, Uh, kind of identity in our work for wine. I think that there's just... So much um, knowledge exactly. and, and best practices. It's like, otherwise, how, how? How do you grow? Um, how do you grow? if you grow? just look a thought If you are talking to you. yourself. And anyway. using disciplines so, that don't necessarily match up. You see up me, with what you like, with these last few exactly minutes, even though we're
0: about 30 minutes over have, what I usually tell um, people, I'm like, what did we Look, yeah. I usually go an hour, but the, I think my last two interviews, we've gone like one went like an hour and 45, and then the other one I just had to stop, and then we just kept talking for two and a half hours. So, with the last few moments, um, what I would oh, love oh. to hear from you, and what I, you know, what I would would love to get after the show, really, is like if you can drop me a list of a lot of those books oh, wow. that you referenced today, so we can just link them mm-hmm. in the um, link them in the description, link them on the page with mm-hmm. the, with the podcast itself, so people can go. But what you know, what are the top? I would say because three seems tight. Give me five books yeah. that people need to purchase and read just within the next season like for people to put on their reading list to get on their audible like however they're absorbing this information right now what are five books that people just need to get in their get in their life right now to help them kind of start to shift their thinking about black food black food ways and black food Mm -hmm. business
1: Mm. mm. Um okay. So I would uh, for me um I am a endless Lewis biographer. I think that she is so critical to the way we think about identity in this work, and taste is, of country cooking is absolutely iconic. But I actually wish that and hope that people think about Verna May Grosner. She passed away three or four years ago at this point, and I think that she is, she was a um, at, she was a lot of things, but um, the main sort of function of her writing was as a colonial anthropologist, and Travel Notes of Geechee Girl is like it's to me, it's not a native son. It's the sort of the agency and sort of the autonomy she had in her writing, the sort of centeredness I mean, in terms of blackness that she had, and the way she engaged her her writing, um, the artistic discipline she brought to her recipes in that book. Um, just to me, like they kick doors in. It 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 literally says like. I'm gifted to my soul and that's dope enough like you you you're welcome for me sharing it with you um how amazing it is to be black in this in in this country and here's why our food ways are delicious and dope and you should pay attention so traveling to with the youtube girl Verda Mae um I kind of book um and she it was written in the same generation as says of country cooking so either one of those but I would start with uh, vertemix. If you read that book, you can't you can't unknow Ferdinand. May. And so I think to to then transition into um, Jessica Harris's How on the Hog becomes critical because Dr. Harris has given us a 13 chapter um, dissertation on the the sort of progression and truth of um the black hands of American food waste. She gives us these stories and these sort of um, these narratives that give you perfect context for what our legacy in American food ways really is. And it's a completely underrated book folks don't pay way, not nearly enough attention to it, but it is absolutely iconic and it does, um, sort of give you a fair and balanced base of knowledge, um, to sort of think about our identity in American foodways. Um, if you read those two things, then you be ready to think about personal narratives. And so I think Michael Twitty's, um, the cooking gene is critical because he's giving you the diaspora. He's thinking about um, not just the enslaved experience, but um, these reference points from the continent and what what the enslaved have to give us and tell us about dignity and about place and and like sort of agency in an in, in institution that I think mm. um, get. Marginalized in ways that aren't healthy or honest. Um, The enslaved experience is really the birth of our culinary identity. And I think that you you can't look at um, (laughs) what his practice and what he does um, in the zeitgeist. Clearly, unless you really understand why he's on these plantations and why he's picking cotton from KC to Kansas. there's a... A, a culinary authority that comes from your life depending on whether your fire is sustainable whether your bread rises you don't have a choice to not be culinarily excellent um if you are an enslaved chef and not to suggest i mean there's a narrative around our food ways that is always about deprivation always about the um, making making something out of nothing and can you know yeah. but there's a uh, it's never juxtaposed with the the, 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 the black bottom truth that if you were an enslaved cook, if you post emancipation are a domestic worker before this profession was legitimized in the eyes of the country. Before we had restaurants, it was black and brown chefs from Haiti and Africa and you know the whole of the Caribbean in the American South. Who gave America its credibility um, as a colonial juggernaut? If you ha- if you were setting the the finest tables of the day, um, before 1977, it was a black hand that was giving your right. table its authority. And so, I think what Michael's work does and what his book did um, is really sort of set the tone for this notion of reframing the enslaved experience, but reframing black identity in America, and sort of saying like you have to turn these old white tropes um, on their heads because the ancestors were subversive. They were wily. They were brilliant. And the narrative is always framed in a way that um, diminishes their humanity, but also diminishes yeah. it. like full on doping. Um, if you read those yes. three, then I think that um, for reference, you have to go to the Jemima Code. Tony Tipton Martin gave us It's gorgeous. James Beard Award winning coffee table book that is all about um dignity. She's Tony Sister Martin is completely underrated. Um food historian, food figure. She was a journalist first. She was the one of the first food editors before that was a thing. Um food editors of color. She was at the LA Times and was Rachel Kane so that that heyday yeah. of oh, yeah. um the you know, sort of emerging food media. Um and she's young enough to have been um, in those rooms with N. Lewis and yes. founding member of SSA, and all these, all these things, right? And so, her career mm-hmm. has been about um, wanting to see her grandmother, wanting to see our heritage um, yes. represented, like, it, telling your story in your media. voice. So as a journalist, she is, basically is just really got barren. on her beat, got on, and she's exactly. collected she three hundred plus cookbooks, um, two hundred years exactly. Of history. And so, Jemima Cole becomes this heirloom. It becomes this sort of. Um, beautiful tactile um stunningly shot um reference for these 200 years of receipts we ha- we have culinary receipts out here and i think the jamal Cole does beautifully um what we really need as a community so to say like here are the books here from Rupert estes to, to um john dabby to princess pamela to um to Ty Richards and JJ Johnson there's this there's this continuum of black excellence black dopeness um and here the heresy um I think that it's a, a book that I, I continue to go back to because it sort of showcases um the fact that um, food media, as it's been emerging, had always had black and brown people. You got um, Carson Gully in the Midwest. There were these examples in times where narratives are relatively limited that prove that black and brown people have been in these streets. But like, it's very easy to um was it but the history belongs to the people who tell stories and so when we allow mainstream media to tell our narratives in ways that dismiss us um it does a disservice to the, the legacy that we sort of um have really died for um for i think a modern book that i think is really interesting that I wish, um, I hope that more people look at um, is Lazarus Lynch's um, son of a um, Southern chef. Lazarus is 25 years old. And to be 25, he's actually put in over a decade of work, right? He went to Food and Finance High School here in the city, which is, I mean, in lots of ways, better than some culinary schools around the country. Um, But he is so fully fully formed as a person. He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly where he comes from. He knows what his aesthetics are. And he's been able to navigate and break through, um, traditional media in ways that, um, I think it's kind of a masterclass in kicking these people's doors and taking their resources and turning them on their heads. Um, Food Network, I think, gets a lot of critique. I don't necessarily consume it, but I consume him. Um, I think that she shows us, um, I mean, I'm 38, and he, I think the, the lessons I've learned from watching him navigate through um, his media journey, especially, um, has been about um, agency, right? Like, you, you, if you enter a space sensing your own point of view and are unwilling to compromise, um we're in a moment where not just black culture, but um, authenticity and sort of clarity of voice is sexy, is, um, is marketable. And the moment we're having around black food ways, is not a fad. I mean our, our culture, our food aren't a fad. But there's a there's a fetishization, I think, sometimes of blackness and what well, you said to think about um, our culture always being hot. It absolutely is. Um because, because we just we taste make, makers, right? But there's a, I think the the danger sometimes is um not sort of being rigorous and Lazarus it may it may look fly it may look like he out here thirst trapping and gotcha he got his instagram got him half naked and doing all kind of you you out here with vogue suits and whatnot but don't let don't let the instagram fool you because there is a rigor to the way his personal presentation um is setting the tone for how media and how the public engages his work, and so to me, that's subversive. That's that's the blueprint, right? That's part of the um, the, the the best practices. that I think with more chefs of color, specifically, we're looking at, we're sort of empower folks to just sort of, what the hell do you have to say? Like, if, unless you guys, you you don't have to. It doesn't have to be about bombast or bull. It's got to be what 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 are you out here saying? And it should be fully form, and it and it could look like anything. But Lazarus, I think it gives a, it gives me. It's like when I look at him, I I know we're gonna be all right because I know that, um, you know, this is this is what the future looks like. It looks like, you know, telling your story in in ways that sort of demand attention. Yes. All you got. It's the simplest. It sounds so simple, and people will, but they overlook the the power of simplicity. What do you have? How do you have? How do you say? If, if you just concentrate on that, like you said, that's a rabbit hole you 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 would be consumed with. Yes. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. hmm and it stops you say and, and you get I get I used to get um I used to get uh not frustrated, but I used to get nervous when you get that in the headlights that like, oh because I think that people don't ask that question enough, right? We don't require much of young people. The we distance that you just go to college school because that's the approval, go to your internship and go out to the industry. That is not rigorous. That is not for, for anybody, not just for of color, but young people of color. It's anybody, but especially out while we requiring... there 'em there's gotta be and I'm I'm not talking about barriers to entry, I'm talking about requirement of your place in this industry. There was a requirement for Georgia Gilmore. There are there are it's not even about even like, um think about like Kwame's book, um she talks about like why do what people kinda like sort of um They critique him for being so young. And like, what dudes has he paid? And he he talks about like, well, who am I paying these dues to? I'm not talking about dues. I'm talking about what are you, what work are you putting in? What are your receipts? You can't check me on you. I want us to get to a place where collectively we're putting in the kind of work that does not, you can't check us. You can't check my receipt because if you put in work that gives you a degree of agency or autonomy in this in this industry that that is undeniable. You can't you can't, you once you, you because you can't unknow Bernie once you know it. You can't and so when you are fortified with those kinds of cultural receipts, it informs everything else you do. And so I want young people like you said that 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 question stops a lot of young people in their tracks because most folks most. Just most um, elders aren't asking that question to them. And it's it's I don't know what it is, maybe it's a sense that, you know, these young people, we have lots of generational conversations that lament millennials and all of this, but that moment, like you said, when you ask a young person, what do you have to say? That's sometimes gonna be the first time they've ever been asked that question. And that that that, that posture change, um is that straightening their spine. Yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's the it's the most valuable experience that you can offer anyone else is a look to your story and into your experience because that's also that's where all the heat is. You know, when I have in I have culinary interns um, in any of the kitchens I've worked in, the first thing I the first question we always talk around I talk talk through is what do you have to say? Because food is the medium in which you've decided to say it, but what do you have to say first? Because if you can't nip it now. Absolutely. Period. Yep. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yes, yes. Because then it, because the question infers that you have something to say. And so when they're like, wait a minute. And it's like, so, you know, that deer in headlights look is, is usually wrapped up in both. Like, okay, wait a minute. How do I answer this question? And then this lady had, this. this woman has just had the audacity to tell me that I had something to say. And now I need to figure, and now I'm charged with finding out what that is. And if you look, so, well, now, look, I, I've already decided I'm going to try to figure out some type of like final podcast with everybody, because most of these conversations <laughs> have turned into like, what else can we do? Is there some type of roundtable on PBS we can start? What can we do? Um, so I am definitely going to be some part twos to a lot of these conversations, because it's just like, you know, for me, that was the point of creating the podcast to begin with is because I, I I knew that these conversations were being had and I was having them myself and it was just like, how can we collectively have it? Like we, we need more voices in the conversation. Um, so I, you know, for now I was like, thank you so much for your time. Um, I will, we have, Look, I'm I'm definitely working on a couple of ways to just you know gather gather the ladies one more time. So you know it might be like a Google Hangout where people can call in and just ask questions, and we can just kind of do create something around that. But there's definitely going to be an opportunity for people to just revisit some of these conversations because I know anytime I post a new podcast if people listen to it, they're like, oh my gosh, I just didn't even know, I just didn't know. And so you know, they, no one thinks about the person behind that door with the porthole at the restaurant. Ever or the person who put who put that plate of food together, they just don't think past the fact that they had this, you know they have this white coat on. And someone's referred to them as chef, or um, you know they've create, they create you know they they booked your hotel room or they they man their name is on it. The, like they just don't think past it. And so I've ha- definitely had some you know people just like thank you so much. Like I didn't even realize that these things were happening. That that a lot of the issues that are currently like in the news and in our political conversations have have gone this deep and i'm like well a lot of them started there you know as you think about the work that enslaved people did when they first got here those that work was always connected to food food production um food management so we the, the, a lot of this inequality and and a lot of the the, the racism and, the, and a lot of the other conversations we are now currently having and are forced to have because of the of the climate we live in started in these food spaces they are some of the, the the oldest spaces of inequality and racism in the country. And so just to be able to like have these discussions and have like to have a vigorous and, in- and intelligent discussion about them has been definitely next level for me. And I appreciate you so um, I we will revisit this again, and um, I like I said I'm going to, I'm gonna have to create something because I just it, they're just too good to not continue. So um, so thank you again, and um, like I said just hit me up in the, with an email with the list of those books and those publications because I definitely it's definitely something that is front of mind for me right now after being in the bookstore because you you know I got used to you know using my kindle or listening on audible and I hadn't been in a physical bookstore in a while and just to see a physical a physical representation of what we've been talking about is um is challenging and so for me I was just like oh it doesn't exist and they they aren't here the voices aren't here and that's a that's problematic for me so um definitely I want to get the get that list of books out to people so they can start buying them and and just you know eating the eaten this information um so they are like you said they are fortified by it and they understand their they, they understand their own dopeness and they understand their own history and so they know that the, the tools they need and the tools that um the foundation that they need exist and they just need to tap into it
1: yep so on the on the site, like I base, I mean I have I have to I actually want to like add a couple categories, but I think it's vital to read the reading list through because there's also a lot of like like sort of dense academic um, scholarship that is super. I mean, like I mean the the, the rice rabbit hole is one that I, is just crazy, but um, they're, they're like. Um, yeah. But it's, a, um, the lists I have on the site now are pretty extensive, um, and they all kind of, they kind of, yeah, it's kind of running lists, so it's one of those things too I gotta do, like, I do like a crowdsource sort of thing every couple of months, like, okay, what am I missing? I need folks to take a look, like, what, what should, what, what am I, um, what are you reading and what should I be adding to the list? But it's, it's kind of, everything's broken up into, like, so this is Southern Studies, this is Black Cultural Studies, this is the stuff you should be thinking about, this is the, Perfect. Okay, so now, I'll
0: just we'll forget the list, and I'll just go ahead and share the site and make sure people know. Like, go check that if you need to know what to read over the coming season. You know, I always have a summer reading list, and then I'll have a fall reading list. And I'm like, in the upcoming months, um, when you're traveling and you are you have a, you have some time, definitely to dig into some reading, um, which is something you should do anyway. But um, I digress.
1: Jubilee is one book. I'm, I'm, it's on my mind just because I'm. Um, I just, just did an interview with that. I'm writing a piece for Taste. But um, Tony Sitton Martin's follow-up to um, Jamamico is okay. called Jubilee, and it is. It's, a, it's like the It's like the cookbook companion to the book. To, um, the, the um, to Jamamico, and it's yeah, it's pretty dope. Like it was, go, This is this is the fall book you're gonna want to think about. Okay. okay. Um, because it's. it's her, it's, it's, she uses the the cook the 300 cookbooks, the kind of like if you read Soul by um, uh yeah. Ty Richards he uses he, encyclopedia almost like he really in, in, by ingredients to sort of define soul food or black food ways um, and then you look at like Harlem from Harlem and Heaven um, by J.J. J. Johnson and Alexander Smalls and they sort of use the Cecil and sort of diaspora conversation to sort of um, give us a blueprint for what diaspora cooking looks like but I think that what Jubilee does is use heritage and uses these um uh historical cookbooks to sort of cook in a modern way and she got drug guides through the food styling so
0: it's it's pretty nice okay now uh for for listeners and people tuning in who want to follow you or um find out what you're doing or if they want to um you know just get connected where do they need to look So the
1: site is BlackCulinaryHistory.com and then on socials in general I'm Black Culinary most places and then also our network I mean when I started this work 10 years ago it was literally this. this, I mean the the, the bombast of a 20 something but I started with this sort of I called it a manifesto at the time but it was I think it's like 40 people it was chefs of folks by degrees of separation that I knew and wanted to sort of um, start Mm. network with. But we've grown to a, a global network of over 3,500 chefs, um, just cooking, writing, farming, are really around the world. I mean, our network is there's a, a really dope collective in, in um, London, is folks in Australia. It's just it's really an awesome community so it's based on Facebook now because it's sort of social networking part, but folks share you know articles and good news and what they're doing, the work they're doing, and it's just really it's, it's a community that grew organically. And it's just, I can't, I, I refuse to have a conversation with anybody about lack of community because I've literally built it and I see it growing every day. So, um, just Black Cone History is um, the site and our group on Facebook. and
0: I'm black culinary everywhere. I might wanna hit the mute button. All right, now, do you, do you podcast? Do you have like a, a running podcast at this point? Is there?
1: I do not and I think that's the thing, right? Like, I, My day-to-day life yeah. is so, oh, yeah. like fully <laughs> entrenched in the kitchen, um, but I do a lot of freelance writing, so like I write okay. now for Taste mainly. Um, but like I do, I mean, I do public talks probably yeah. twice a month, um, there's, you know, sort of panels and these kinds of conversations are really being had in cultural spaces in a more expansive way, which is, I'm, I'm excited about, like, um, we just did Sean Burke Center's literary festival, um, Food and Grooves is going to happen in October, um, Five Pound Fork is a Dope Conference, um, or Food Festival in Richmond, Um, so I'll be doing a historical dinner Then um, it's just, it's, I feel like the the work I do is mainly, like, out in cultural spaces, because I think that, um, I think non culinary cultural spaces are gonna be sort of new background yeah, for black definitely. food conversations. Um I'm looking at like Brian Perry and the work he's doing at Mo Moet, um in San Francisco. It's like that's I mean that's the first time a, a museum has mm-hmm. a chef in residence, but the work he's doing there food, the power of thinking broadly about food culture as part of sort of broader culture. So the work I'm doing recently especially um is sort of pairing writing with um sort of cultural clonic commentary so it's really it's been interesting to sort of see that space moving mm. up in that way um so I think is its, it's taking um, other sort of colonial dis- cultural disciplines to sort of infuse and include the food conversation because you, to your point earlier about um then the, the lens of food being a clarifying um a clarifying force in a lot of these political, socioeconomic, um, community-based conversations. The, the lens of food sort of cuts through a lot of um, the sort of circular talking and makes clear a lot of a lot of these issues. So, then that's just kind of the, where my work is centering these days.
0: All right. Well, thank you again. If you you guys please like follow, engage, become a part of the community, like you said, like like she said. There's no excuse for not being not using the communities available to you because they're out there mm-hmm. and you are not out here doing this work by yourself um so no. don't don't isolate yourself and uh you know so it's available if you want it so uh again it's um in it, it's just time to to mm-hmm. do it so i was like you know <laughs> yes. we're kind we have run we have run low on excuses at this point so just part of you know get, get connected and um, and watch it grow Thank you for listening to this week's Afros and Knives podcast episode. Don't forget to reach out and leave us a comment or give us some feedback on this week's episode. Let us know what you enjoyed. If you have any questions or if you just want to jump in on this week's conversation, you can visit www.afrosandknives.com in order to um, just add your your voice to the conversation. And uh, we'd absolutely love that. Don't forget to catch, uh, catch us on iTunes, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you may podcast. New episodes are available every Tuesday, usually right around 8 or 9 p.m. Uh, Mountain Time. So um, it's going to be a little later for you folks on the East Coast. Um, don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Um, those places are the best places to find out when new episodes are coming up and who is going to be featured in them. Um, we have a couple of more episodes in this season, and I just want to thank everyone who has listened in on one episode, a half an episode, two seconds of an episode, or every single episode. Um, your support is much appreciated and um it just doesn't get done you know unless there's an audience so thank you so much um it's definitely a community and you know i love having everyone as part of this new community of people um there are a lot of things in the works for the next season we're hoping to add some video components and so we're looking to um just get that, get that, get that extension funded at this point. So you might see a Kickstarter pop up or a couple of other opportunities to just become a a bigger support of the podcast. At this point, we are already on Patreon. If you did not know that already, and it's just patreon.com backslash Afros and knives, and you can jump on there and just check out all of the thank you gifts and things available for our patrons. So thank you again for, um, just listening in this season. I cannot believe we've already gotten through 10 episodes so far. So the last two are, um, again, every drop every Tuesday and then, um, You know, we'll put together kind of a season finale type episode and just uh, regather all of our uh, our interviews and see if we can get one big um, one big interview going with a live audience. So um, definitely check the website and keep your eyes on social media just to see when that will happen and how you can be a part of it. Um, at the end of the season, there will be an official podcast calendar available. Um, there's, don't forget to buy your official season one t-shirt, um, because it will not be available after, um, the end of September. Um, and, uh, there'll be a new t-shirt available for season two. So if some of your favorites, um, were interviewed during season one and you want to rock that shirt with their names on it, definitely get that shirt now before the end of the month. So again, thank you for listening in on this week's uh, episode. I hope you got a lot from it. Be sure to visit um, the, the uh, Black Culinary History website and just get that list of books and reading material that, um, you know, that everyone should have in their library or at least um, stored somewhere mentally. And, uh, you know, and, and again, be a part of the conversation. So we will catch you next week.